Oh, thank you. Well, first of all, I want to share with you my most embarrassing moment, at least at this age of my life. And, and then one of my uh, oh, heartfelt moments of my life, and then the greatest joy of my life, and that is the subject of the evening, my most embarrassing moment. Uh, a few months ago, some of us, had the privilege of attending the funeral of a dear friend down in Fort Worth, Texas, Bill Garrison, an attorney, a man of God, uh, a mentor for many of us in so many different ways. And uh, God saw fit to take him home, and we went down to for the memorial service. And uh, Bev and I spent a day or so down there, and we got to the airport at Dallas-Fort Worth to come home. And, of course, at my age, why, there's all kinds of things in the body that were originally not put there by the Lord. And uh, so I put all the stuff I had, and you have to empty your pockets, you know, and your wristwatch comes off, and your shoes come off. And I've been doing it for so long that... As I get ready to go through uh, the little arch, I see I've got two knees with metal in them. And sure enough, why, the bells ring. And uh, I have to go over into a certain little place and stand there while a gentleman comes to search me. And if you've done it a few times, the first time you do, you raise your right hand, uh, foot and he works that over and in your left foot, and then he has you stand on two places there on the rug, and you lift your arms. So here you are, standing there in front of all the people of the airport. (laughs) And the bells go off. I forgot to take off this belt. And, of course, that's going to ring all kinds of things. But also I had forgotten when I put the belt on to button my pants. (laughs) So I didn't remember that. I took the belt off, handed it to him, raised my hands. And all of a sudden, I realized that my pants are down by my knees. (laughs) Well, if they're going to do this to me, I'm going to wait and let them uh, see what they do. There is an older gentleman sitting over there in a high platform uh, at a desk. And immediately he came and everybody rushed and they formed a circle around me while I pulled my pants back up. (laughs) Uh, This is one of the thrills of getting older, huh? My most uh, heart-rendering of recent years was day before yesterday. As I went to Penrose Hospital 
to room 3022. For those of you in Colorado Springs, why, it's a new wing of Penrose. It isn't the intensive care unit per se, but just a step down. And there I walked into the room of my 50-year-old, not 50-year-old, but 50 years he and I have been buddies, Lauren Sani, former president of the Navigators. And I went there with the purpose of encouraging him and to try to lift his spirits. An hour and a half later, I left encouraged. There he is with tubes up his nose and uh, liquid going into his arms and several other machines checking on him. And I sat down and we held hands. He said, well, Bob, I'm at the end of the line. My times are in his hands. And the word times is terminal. My terminus is in his hands. I knew he had cancer. I knew that his lungs were not in good condition. I knew that he had a fever. This is it. He said, I don't know when I'm going to go, and I don't know how I'm going to go, but with a smile on that drawn, he's probably down to about 115 pounds. The fellow was up in the 200s. He said, I know where I'm going to go. Isn't that great? You know, in a little while, we're going to be able to celebrate communion. And the wonderful thing about enjoying the cup and the bread is that one day we're going to see him do this till I come again. And that's why he blessed my heart. I don't know when. I don't know how but I know where. And so I, in the conversation, I said, Lord, uh, uh, Lauren, how do you think you're going to go? He said, Bob, I'm a wimp. I've always thought as a tetonic blood in me that I would be strong when it comes to this day and hour but I'm scared oh I can quote to you scripture he said and and he could but he said I think it's going to be with suffering and pain and I knew that he's heavily dosed already but he was in pain. And I thought, wow. 
Why does it have to be Lauren? Why can't it be me? And if he feels like he's a wimp, tomorrow I'll be going down again to spend time with him if he's still with us. But gentlemen, I trust that I didn't share that with you just to lay something heavy on you, except it's heavy on me because I want to be an encouragement to men while they're living, while their health is good. And I go in there to be an encouragement to a man that I know within just a matter of probably days now, he'll be with his Lord. But he encouraged me. He's been doing that. I have a letter that periodically I pull out of my files. I don't have it filed very far away. And I read it. It's dated December 12th, 1988. Dear Bob, greetings in the name of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who alone possesses the ability and wisdom to craft a Douglas fir out of naked nothing. Day before yesterday, I was riding cold and alone on a ski lift up Keystone Peak, and it struck me that a man might labor his entire life to try and make one Douglas fir. And if he could succeed, how the whole world would flock to his door and feature him in the media, on talk shows, and even in the Wall Street Journal. But what a man cannot do with his utmost effort, the Creator did a million times over. What a God we serve. Then a couple personal paragraphs, and he closes. During this Christmas season, may the little Lord Jesus who grew up to preach, heal, die, rise, and save, may he arise afresh in your heart. Gratefully yours and his, Jim Condon. Jim, thank you so much. Fifteen years ago, one of you guys wrote to me. You were in my prayers during your trip to the Orient. Did you grow through this experience? Were you used by God as far as a man can detect that? Welcome back. You see, it takes time for a guy busy and work and ministry over there in Topeka to a fellow that 
is a mild acquaintance. Merry Christmas, Bob. And I keep it because occasionally, because of that paragraph, I need to be reminded that what a creator did a million times over, man cannot do with his utmost effort. And I live here in the forest. Uh, this big tree right out here on the front lawn is our state tree, the blue spruce. By the way, we planted that in 1961, late spring. At that time, it was the same height as my son Bob. Bob wasn't as tall then. He was in junior high. And I've told him, man, if you had kept growing like that tree, you'd still be playing pro basketball. But he preferred to fly helicopters and come back with his dad. Are you an encourager? Do you want to be? From this very spot, probably 10 years ago, Winston Parker closed off the weekend by challenging us with three questions. Do you have a Paul in your life? Somebody who was helping you, mentoring you, taking you as a son? Are you a Paul helping somebody else? Question number two. Do you have a Timothy? Somebody that you're helping, mentoring, bringing along. Are you a Timothy? And then Winston said, do you have a Barnabas in your life? And I sat there and thought, a Barnabas? Apollos I know, and Peter I know, but a Barnabas? You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Barnabas? Who in the world is Barnabas? Oh, I opened my Bible to Acts, and I found out that Barnabas is was a real man in the first century. And they had been talking about Barnabas that weekend. And I got to thinking, now, why would Winston Parker want me to be a Barnabas? And I thought of three reasons. Number one... Barnabas was a businessman. And if you know Winston, why, he is rather prejudiced towards businessmen, laymen. He just kind of likes them. Probably because he smells like one himself. That's just where he is. He's right there, you know, where the gravel meets the road. And not a tire, but the gravel meets the road. Number two, he was a real estate man. And uh, Winston likes that. 
this guy had some property and bought it and sold it, and I'm sure he'd done that other times before. This time he did something he'd never done before, but I think Winston liked that. So, gentlemen, be a Barnabas. <laughs> he liked that. But I think there was a third reason why uh, Winston liked Barnabas and wanted us to be a Barnabas. It's because Barnabas sold what he had, and he moved where the action was. And uh, Winston kind of grew up and so forth down in the uh, valley east of uh, Pueblo, down along the Arkansas River, sold out there and came up to Jerusalem, Colorado Springs. <laughs> and uh, became another one of the 100 organizations that have infested uh, Colorado Springs. So I thought, well, if he's a businessman and he sells real estate and he's moved, I thought, well, there's a little bit of those are three things that I have done. So I'd like tonight to have you turn with me to the fourth chapter of the book of Acts. And let's take a look at this character. Now, his name really isn't Barnabas. It's Joseph, Joe. And his nickname became Barney. But the last part of the fourth chapter, beginning with verse 36. The context is of what's going on in Jerusalem, and in the early church right after Pentecost. Listen to the word of God. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed, nicknamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, or very rightly you can say the son of encouragement, the son of hope, the son of optimism, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, or the island of Cyprus, right off the west uh, coast there of that little country that is having so much problems today with Syria. They're in the Mediterranean. Verse 20, uh, 37. Having land, sold it, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, you get a little bit of a picture who Barnabas was. His original name was Joseph. He was a Levite. He was a Jew. Upright man. Turn with me over to the 11th chapter of the book of Acts, and it tells us a little more about who he was. The church wanted to find out what's going on up in Antioch, up north, among the Gentiles, and they decided, hey, let's send Barnabas, because he used to be up in that part of the country. 
And so in verse 23 of chapter 11, When he came and seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cling unto the Lord. Now here's this businessman. <laughs> they didn't send, uh, you know, one of the apostles. <coughs> James, who was kind of the head of the church there at Jerusalem, didn't go. They sent somebody they felt that probably the church at Antioch would receive. And already there in that verse you get a little bit of something of his character in verse 23. But then look at verse 24. He was, this is Barnabas or Joseph, was a righteous man. Maybe your translation says a good man. Only three people in the New Testament that are mentioned as good. Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea, and Barnabas. Good man. Full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Wow. I like that, huh? Here is this Levite, this Jew. Good man full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith. Just like the stuff that's sitting right here and standing right here in this room now. Nothing special, no great education. was used of God. Now, He wasn't perfect. And I've got to say this because, yeah, but I'm no Barnabas. I, you know, I'm a long ways from that. Yeah, that's the great thing. You see, you're not a finished product, huh? None of us are. We're still on the way. That's the wonderful thing about the, didn't you enjoy the testimony tonight? This isn't what he is. This is what he was. But by the grace of God, what God has done in your life. Wow. Turn with me to the second chapter of the book of Galatians. Can you do that? Uh, several books over from Acts. The second chapter. Paul's writing to the church of Galatia, and they were all tied up with legalism, and you got to be circumcised, and do we have to be circumcised? You know, you got to keep the law. Do we have to keep the law? Oh, on and on and went. As Gentiles, do I have to become a Jew? If I'm a Jew, can I eat with a Gentile who is eating meat that's been offered to idols? On and on and on it went. And so verse 12, certain men came from James. That's down in Jerusalem. He was kind of the leader of the apostles down there. He did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew 
and separated himself, fearing them that were of the circumcision. Wow. Do it, but then when the mothers come who are my friends of the same church, have the same rules and regulations, then I won't do it. You know, double standard here. And the other Jews dissembled in the like manner with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their what? What's it say in your Bible? It says hypocrisy in mine. Yeah. Hey, let's be real. Barnabas was carried away. And then Paul goes ahead and and all I'm doing is just bringing up the fact that Barnabas, you know, all the good stuff we read about him also was very real. He he wasn't, you know, as a Jew, can I eat with those Gentiles? I was brought up in a the Orthodox Presbyterian fellowship where we didn't sing. Tonight, the songs you sang would have been anathema in our fellowship, and particularly this music that's of the world. And, uh, uh, you know, all we could sing was out of the psaltery, the psalms, and they were put to music. And we had a man with a little pitch pipe. As a little boy, I can remember this so clear, you know. Now, in, in Sabbath school, we called it, uh, in the Sunday school hall while we could sing hymns, but not in the sanctuary, you know. Boy, when I see preachers as they're dressed today, you know, and I think back, you know, always had a robe on and there was a white collar around his throat. I wish they would do that to him, but they didn't. And I can remember occasionally my folks would take me. I can remember as a little boy, my father took me to a church to hear an evangelist by the name of Gypsy Smith. He was an Englishman. He had been grew up among the the gypsies, and uh, very. <laughs> that's a story in itself. I mean, the gypsies are. But uh, he he found the Lord. And I was as a little fella. I thought. Man, you know, here's this man in just a, a ordinary suit, and uh, the choir or the the guy who led the singing, his name was Biddy Kofer. Uh, you know, I don't remember how he was dressed, but as a little kid, I thought, what right have they in this church to be dressed that way? And I was probably only five, six, seven, eight years old. That's exactly what Parnas was facing. So here we have him, a Jew, a Levite, in business, on the island of Cyprus, a righteous man, full of the Holy Spirit. Maybe he'd been at Pentecost, we don't know. Probably was. And a man of faith. A man of reputation, so that the church says, Go represent us and see what the church up at Antioch needs. So now, take your Bible and let's go back to the fourth chapter. And I've got 
four things about the healing power of encouragement on the part of Barnabas. First of all, (laughs) and we'll start right off, he did it with his money. The encouragement of finances. He sold some property, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, we don't know if the the land was on Cyprus, or he had some land there in Palestine. We just know that he owned it. He sent the deed over to somebody else, got the money. Rather than putting it in his pocket, putting it in the bank, he just took it and gave it. You know, is that to be the norm? I think if any of us had the qualifications in the background that Barnabas had, we'd probably do the same thing because the church was in distress. If a Jew accepted Jesus as their Messiah, their Savior, they couldn't get a job. Plus the fact that there was poverty in the land. The church had... Jerusalem was in dire straits. And here was this fellow, he had it. And he knew enough of the scriptures to know that give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure. Pressed down, shaken together. Still it will overflow. He knew that you cannot outgive God. A lot of you men know it. Some of you are learning it. Some of you haven't experienced it yet. But Barnabas had the ministry of finances. And you know, it's interesting how the Holy Spirit follows right up in the next chapter. There were no chapters in the original scripture we put in there to help us find our way around. But Ananias and Sapphira, they heard what Barnabas did. And so, yeah, let's do that too. Oh, honey, now that's not being wise. As good stewards, we need to live ourselves. So let's let's give to the Lord, but let's keep some just in case for a rainy day. Now, that is not wrong. It was... They gave as if they had done the same Barnabas had done. That they had laid it all. And they lied to the Holy Spirit. They lied to the church. They lied to the leadership. Barnabas. No strings attached. Oh, I don't know how many years ago. It was an organization. And a gentleman gave $5 million to help rebuild a library or add on to it. And I thought, wow. 
That's terrific. Wow. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to give five, you know, 500,000 or even 5,000, but five million. One for his wife, one for himself, and one for each one of his boys. I don't think in his heart there were strings attached, but somehow or other the library was named after him. Six months later, he became chairman of the board. You know, gentlemen, Barnabas gave with no strings attached. He just laid it at their feet. And once it leaves your hands, it's no longer your responsibility. Now, if you've got problems with who you're giving it to, yes, there probably should be some strings attached. I'm privileged to be on a board, English Language Institute of China. And uh, we have a large donor up in um, Bakersfield, California. They got 90% of these small little carrots that you see and your wife sees them. You, you probably enjoy them. Huh? They're big carrots, but... Their process is to take the big carrot and out of the big carrot make a whole bunch of little carrots. And then what's ever left over they put into a truck and take it out and feed cattle. And they're making money on the cattle with the leftovers of the other carrots. But this Dutchman and his family from Grand Rapids, Michigan, moved out to Bakersfield and started doing this with carrots. And now that organization gives away millions of dollars every year to the Lord's work. But I was so happy at a board meeting before they gave a gift a couple years ago. They asked us for our financial, not for our financial statement, we'd already given them. They asked us for our doctrinal statement. And they asked that each year we renew our commitment to that doctrinal statement. Isn't that good? You want to make sure. I've wondered people who have given in the past to great churches, great organizations, whether they regret what's happened to their gift now many years later. Gentlemen, your pocketbook... Your wallet, your check account, your stocks, whatever, are not yours. You're a steward of them, huh? Many of you are in the financial business, and you're helping people make their investment. I want you to be a Barnabas with what you have. Dick Hillis, founder of O.C., Organization in Carlos Springs. Missionary in China. Asia. He started the organization out as Orient Crusades. Then it went beyond that and became uh, Oriental Crusades. Now it's just OC. But I remember had Dick Harverson, I mean <laughs> Dick Hillis, come to our Sunday school class down at First Press there in Carlos Springs. 
And I don't remember now what he's talking about. <laughs> but he said this. He said, you show me your checkbook and let me look through and I'll tell you the degree of your walking with the Lord. I'll tell you, a muddy hush came over that Sunday school class. Barnabas, no strings attached. Your your money, which you are just a steward of, your fun, can be a tremendous encouragement. And may I just add this as we go on to the next point. Don't get bitter. Don't get discouraged. Don't get angry with all the pleas that you have for money. Third-class mail, telephone calls, all the rest, you know. Get it settled in your heart what you, your wife, your family should do. And then, you know, let it be a joyful thing, huh? The Lord loves a cheerful giver. Hilarious. Wow! What a privilege to give to the things of the Lord. We had a little girl that's worked here for several years. Anne is her name. She worked, took care of the cabins, and she was our baker for a while. She's got a burden on her heart to teach school overseas. Right now she's in Vietnam, just outside of Hanoi, in a little community teaching English as a second language. Anne needed $17,000 for her first year, including transportation over, transportation back, insurance, and all the rest. We got her letter. Bev and I thought, what can we do? The thrilling thing. And Anne says, boy, I don't know if I'll be able to go because I don't, I don't think I'll be able to raise $17,000. Gentlemen, $23,000 came in. One of the guys here on staff right now took his savings. Not that he's in love with Ann. <laughs> he's in love with Ann's Lord. You know, it's that deal. He said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Ann's over there teaching. He just gave her several thousand dollars. Boy, God loves that. I want us to all enjoy the ministry of finances. Well, let's go ahead. Over in the ninth chapter, which is the great story of Saul of Tarsus getting to know the Savior and on the road to Damascus, you know that story, I trust. He heads back down to Jerusalem. <laughs> Beginning with verse 23. After many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. 
but their lying in wait was known by Saul. And they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down by the wall in a basket. <laughs> That's humiliating, isn't it? That's what you get when you accept Christ. You end up going down over the side of the wall. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he tried to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. No hesitation attached. What God had done for him, I believe (laughs) that what God has done for me, he will do for this fellow Saul of Tarsus. And he declared unto others how he had seen the Lord on the way. This is Saul. And he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he was with them coming in and going in out of Jerusalem. And Saul spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed with the Grecians but they were about to slay him. The ministry of fellowship. Two fellows in a ship. <laughs> this is a ministry of fellowship right here, huh? Brothers you've never met before, now all of a sudden become brothers in Jesus Christ. All one in the Lord. But you see, in those early days, the Jews were so afraid. Because this guy was, you know, like a bull in a china shop. He'd gone up there to Damascus to get rid of the Christians and put him in jail. And now he is a brother in Christ. And can I believe that? And you probably know some fellows, businessmen, that have made a profession of Christ. and Well, let's hold them off. <laughs> let's, let's don't let it get them in too close. Let's keep them... You know, there is a certain aspect of that. But by their works you shall know them. Saul of Tarsus, he tried to join himself... They were afraid of him. They didn't believe he was a disciple. Barnabas did. Bob will never forget (laughs) the Sunday that a family arrived from London, England. Two teenage girls, hair was purple straight up in the air, clothed in black leather and jewelry, all over. Bob put them in a cabin up here above the swimming pool, cliff dwellers. He came down. Do we have to stay in that dump? 
Is that all you've got? Is that the best you've got? I wouldn't want my family to stay in there. I'd rather have my girls stay in a tent. So Bob went up to the commissar and we got a couple tents. The next morning, Monday morning, down at the corral, is this the best horse you've got? You know, this old nag? You see, we're all that way. We like to get in a position where we're on the offensive. And we put other people on the defensive. That's what he was doing with us. He came over to the table where we were sitting as a family in the dining room. He said, I've got two questions for you. And I thought, oh, no. He doesn't like the cabin. He doesn't like this horse. Didn't like the food particularly. I said, well, what are they? How can I make peace with my rabbi in London? I said, well, tell me why you don't have peace. Well, they kicked me out of worship in the synagogue, and I can't return. I said, what's the second question? Would you believe how can I have peace with God? I'm so glad that years ago, Rod Sargent of the Navigators spent time with me trying to help me to learn 108 verses out of the scripture called the Topical Memory System. One of the verses that I learned was Isaiah 118. Come now, let us read. And so it came to my mind. I didn't plan it. I didn't even know what he's going to ask me. How can I have peace with my God? Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Alex, that's how you find peace with God. <coughs> now, now, where is that found? He, I don't know. I gave him where he had a piece of paper. I said, is one of your great prophets, Isaiah, I kind of overemphasized it, chapter 1, he said, and I said, there's a Bible in your cabin. Look it up. The next morning, we're sitting down here getting on our horses just like you do, and I used to take out the tea, tea and crumpet set. That's the beginners, scared to death. Absolutely rather, you know, <laughs> to do anything, to be sitting there on that piece of leather. And what we do is we go over into this meadow right across the bridge, and all the other rides leave, and then we come back in, get off, and go up and have some refreshments. And... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and they pay to do that. 
So we're sitting on our horses, and because Alex's wife was a beginner, why, he went with her, and they were on my ride. He comes over to me with all the people sitting around on their horses, and he hands me a piece of paper. And he said, I've got it here. I said, what do you got? He says, look at it. Now, what would you think he'd have there? He had it all folded up. It wasn't quite this big. And it all folded, opened it all up. He'd handwritten out the Ten Commandments. Now, I don't think he knew them. I know he didn't. But somehow or other, maybe in that Gideon Bible or somehow or other, he found out <laughs> Exodus chapter 20, and he wrote out the Ten Commandments. He gave them to me. I looked at him. I gave him back. I said, Alex, before the sun goes down tonight, I will bet you this ranch against all your real estate holdings over there in London that you will have broken at least one of them. No, I had no right to do that. <laughs> I think it was Jasper Ackerman It was still Exchange National Bank. I don't know who. Somebody owned our rent. Well, you know, we don't. Uh, <laughs> those bankers. <laughs> anyway, uh, I, I did that, you know, and he kind of jest and... I, I had no idea what his vast holdings were over there in London, but uh, anyway, I said that. He said, you mean that? Yeah. So we shook. <laughs> I take my ride out there, come back, and forget all about it. At supper that night, he comes to me, and there's a tap on my shoulder. He said, Foster, you win. I said, I win. Oh, I did? <laughs> Yeah, he said, I broke two of them. Now, I didn't have the courage to ask him what the two were. <laughs> I know you'd like to know, but I, I don't know. Uh, Bev and I took off for Asia. He calls Bob. No, Dad's still over there in Asia. Okay. Called back, what was it, a week later or so? Again, I'm still not back. He said, would you tell your dad that I am now a converted Jew? We didn't do it. God was working in his heart. I want to have peace with God. Now, if you had seen Alex, and you would know of his lifestyle, and I don't know whether he made peace with his rabbi or what. But now he is in the fellowship. Huh? Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts together. Huh? And if you know some guy that has made a decision for Christ or is moving in that direction, hey, put your arms around him. We're all afraid of him, huh? Reach out. Reach out and touch somebody. The ministry 
of fellowship. Number three, 